passage comes from Acts 19:23 through 37. About that time, serious trouble developed in Ephesus coming the way, concerning the way. It began with Demetrius, a silversmith who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Artemis. He kept many craftsmen busy. He called them together along with others employed in similar trades and addressed them as follows. Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business, but as you have seen and heard, this man Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. And he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but through the entire province. Of course, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned with the temple of the great goddess Artemis, who will lose its influence, and that Artemis, this magnificent goddess worshipped throughout the province of Asia and around the world, will be robbed of her great prestige. At this, their anger boiled, and they began to shouting, Great is Artemis of Ephesus! of the Ephesians. The whole city was filled with confusion. Everyone rushed to the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, who were Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Paul wanted to go in too, but the believers wouldn't let him. Some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, who also sent a message to him, begged him not to risk his life by entering the amphitheater. Inside, people were all shouting, some one thing, some another. Even what everything was in confusion. In fact, most of them didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander forward and told him to explain the situation. He motioned for silence and tried to speak. But when the crowd realized he was a Jew, they started shouting again and kept it up for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. At last, the mayor was able to quiet them down enough to speak. Citizens of Ephesus, he said, everyone knows that Ephesus is the official guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, whose image fell down to us from heaven. Since this is an undeniable fact, you should stay calm and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, but they have stolen nothing from the temple and have not spoken against our goddess. Amen. Have you ever wondered what side you would have been in history of like famous debates or really controversial or dark moments in history. Like Germany in the 1930s, you ever wondered if you were a German what you would have done when the Jews were starting to be rounded up? Early 1800s England, let's say you grew up and an upper-class family had some money. Do you ever wonder um, what side of the abolition debate you would have been on? The expert class was predicting economic collapse. Even some preachers were giving seemingly biblical defenses of slavery. No one in your social class was against it. Do you ever wonder what you would have done? Anna just finished reading a book that talked a lot about UGA in the 1960s. None of you just graduated. Well, maybe, Ansley, maybe some of y'all were at um, graduation in December and you heard the speaker at commencement just two months ago. His name was Harold Black. He's the, the, the black name in Black Diallo Miller, BDM, the dorm on Baxter, the new dorm. They were the first three African-American freshmen who enrolled at UGA back in 1962. During his commencement address, he was sharing some stories of what it was like to be a UGA student in 1962. 
And he said before kickoff at the football games, uh, the band would play Dixie. And he wouldn't stand up when they played Dixie. And he said every game that he went to that he remained seated for, he said the UGA students all around him would throw their drinks at him and their trash, and the whole stadium would shout slurs. I don't know how big it was, 60,000 of your fellow students ripping your humanity to shreds. He said there were just a handful of white students during his time here at UGA who stood with him and took the beatings with him, took the persecution and the ridicule with him. Dean Tate was one of those people. uh, Tate Center is named after him. It's why it's named after him. Um, Dean Tate was legendary for marching right down into the stands when all the trash and drinks were being thrown at Harold Black, and he was ripping the wallets out of these students' pockets and taking their student ID. And they would have to come meet him in his office the following week uh, where they would get in trouble. The flagpole wrote an article about this. It said, back in that day, your student ID was your passport. Without it, you were no longer a student. If the dean got your card, he owned you. When push came to shove, Dean Tate could grab you with one hand and your wallet with the other, and immediately the future of your college education depended on what happened when you showed up at his office on the day and time he commanded. He was just one of a few. So come back to the question, because it's easy to imagine ourselves as the cowboy in the white hat, the hero in history. We would always be on the side of the good even though those people were usually in a really tiny minority. So the question comes back to me and to you. I wonder what role we would have had. What, a, what kind of student would you have been in 1962? Same place, same campus, same town. Think about what we've been talking about the past six weeks. Would perhaps a love of comfort and the, the security that anonymity just being a lost face in the cloud, it's not me heaping ridicule on this person. Would, would the comfort and anonymity of the crowd or the approval of the friends I came to the game with, would that win? And I would lie low. And that would become a habit, just lie low. Would I be one outraged that someone would dare to buck the status quo? and I would be an abuser, would you go stand with him? Would you subject yourself to the ridicule of 60,000 people? The moral clarity of hindsight is 2020, right? I mean, again, it's easy for us to look back and be like, I'd be a good guy, a good girl in that scenario. But moral clarity in moments like that depend on your recognition and resistance to institutionalized idolatry. Moral clarity after the fact is easy. Everybody can say Nazis are bad. Moral clarity in the moment, the people whose names you know because they stood in that moment, the William Wilberforce, the John Newton, the Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the people in our country who stood against those forces, we know their names because they were so few, and we know their names because They had moral clarity in the moment when it cost them everything. And that, again, depends on recognition and resistance to institutionalized idolatry. And that clarity only comes when you have 
clarity of Jesus as superior and better and more powerful and more beautiful than anything else in the world that glimmers. Approval of the friends you came to the game with. Remaining in the good favor of a university that didn't want certain students here. Whatever it was, upward mobility that would be threatened by that. When Jesus becomes superior in your eyes, in your estimation, bigger, taller, better, that moral clarity and that moral courage will come. But, like we talked about last week, Christians with a JV Jesus, with junior Jesus, with just quiet time Jesus, who's the Lord of the first 15 minutes of the day in our spiritual lives, but isn't King of kings and Lord of lords of any other part of our lives, that Jesus will never bring moral clarity and never provide moral courage. He's too tiny, right? You certainly can't go around saying that the emperor has no clothes or the idol has no clothes the way Paul was preaching in Ephesus, but tons of other cities of the ancient world in that day. So Christians with a JV, junior, quiet time Jesus can't get to this clarity and this courage. Also, as we talked about last week, Christians with a feel-good Jesus or a feel-bad Jesus, he's always disapproving, you're never enough, you just need to do better next time, or you're just amazing. He never critiques, never gets in our business. Neither of those tiny Jesuses will work either. We need an industrial strength Jesus. If, if you and I are gonna be people who stand apart from the crowd, can recognize and resist idolatry that has somehow found its way into the systems of our society, into the culture itself. So what is institutionalized idolatry? That's a mouthful, I'll try to stop saying it so much. What is it? It's idolatry at scale. It's idolatry that's gone viral and contagious in a campus, in a city, in a country, in a culture. So it's idolatry at scale. And it gets baked into economies, business practices, uh, entertainment, Culture, music, movie, technology, it's baked into the laws that we pass. It's baked into all of that. It's baked into our habits. So it's idolatry at scale, and it's in everything. We've been talking up to this point mostly about almost like a, our personal struggle with idols. This is talking about our city's struggle, UGA's struggle, America's struggle, Western culture's struggle with these idols. Now, where this comes close to home is that you and I all grew up in a, in a city, in a country, and in a culture. And from long before we were able to kind of even think clearly about these things, we were being discipled by our cities, our countries, our cultures. They were rubbing off on us. So the, the, the gods of the culture became our gods, and it's hard to tell that that was happening. You know the name by now because I quote him a lot. You probably hear him quoted a lot, David Foster Wallace, that famous... It's like as if the only thing he ever wrote was this famous commencement address, but he opened it after saying, you know, welcome to commencement. His next sentence was a joke. A goldfish swims by a few other goldfish in the bowl, and he says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two younger fish keep on swimming a little bit, and they look at each other confused, and one says to the other, what the heck is water? And the point of that is, when you're living in it, you don't recognize it. The realities that we're living inside of, swimming in every day of our lives, we're not aware of it. 
Water for a fish is not something the fish is aware exists. Institutionalized idolatry is not really something that we're aware exists until long after it's gotten inside of us and we become a part of it. Uh, Imagine where we would be, though, without God's word, because I just said institutionalized idolatry, it's something we're not even aware of until. I just said until, which means there's a way to become aware of it. God's word, you'll see that in the next few minutes, but where would we be without God's word if, if God was not continually saying to us, hey, how's the water? How's the water? If he was not continually reintroducing himself, course correcting, I'm not like that, I'm this, I'm not JV, industrial strength, <laughs> resurrected from the dead, the God with no birthday and no expiration date, the God who holds all history in his hands, the God who does whatever he pleases and what he pleases is seeking and saving sinners. What if, he, what if we didn't have his word? The, we don't have to guess. Um, look down. I mean, always look down at the page when we're talking through it so you can see it for yourself, but like look down and look at the confusion that's breaking out. Look at, there's, there's stuff in, in verse around, verse 28 through 34. The mental image is chickens running around with their heads cut off. Their anger is boiling. They're confused. People were, all, people were shouting for two hours. They're chanting, glory be to Artemis, glory be to Artemis. Everyone is confusion, verse 32. They didn't even know where they were, verse 32. Confusion reigns. That's where we would be. That's where they were until the word of God arrived at their doorstep through the apostle Paul on this day. So what was their institutionalized idolatry? What patterns of false worship and false god, gods you cannot save, how had that been baked into um, their lives? How did it get baked into their economy, their livelihood, their religion, their politics, their national pride? All of those things are present in this passage. Do you see it? It's all baked in. What about today? How are these things baked in today? I've already alluded to some of it. But what idolatrous water are, are you and I, that have we been raised in? If you grew up in this country, what water have you been swimming around in? I'm just going to list two examples. Um, they're two high caliber examples just to kind of get our wheels turning about the other things. We could talk about dozens. But perhaps um, being raised in um, a country, a culture, maybe in a particular town. Some cities idolize this way more than other cities. But beauty is God. You know what I mean by some cities? Like, that's everything. There's a lot of wealth. Or you, you grew up in a part of town, a part of Atlanta, part of Nashville, a part of Chattanooga, where beauty is God even more than other places. Heather Davis was... Um, Uh, a woman who went to my seminary, Westminster, a few years before I got there, and she wrote an article for the counseling journal that was a part of our seminary. It's called Chasing Beauty, and forgive me for reading a paragraph. This is how she starts her article that captures what we're talking about. And you be thinking about what's it like to grow up in this environment? What's it do to you, men and women, She says, American women are constantly bombarded with the world's unrealistic standards of beauty. The struggle begins early. It's water, right? It's as common common to growing up as learning to sing the star-spangled banner. By the time a female reaches her teen years, she likely has already bought into the lie that there is an elusive, universally accepted, 
ideal woman, and she already falls far short. Until she reaches this impossible standard of beauty, she has no hope of acceptance in the culture around her. Without beauty, she has no opportunity to experience a man's true love, another impossible standard. Her life becomes a futile pursuit of beauty. She may struggle with restrictive eating or binge eating and purging, depression or compulsive shopping or serial dating when she perceives that she has not succeeded in this system. She's talking about the system, the institutionalized idolatry, the water. She might gossip to elevate herself or to lower those around her, and even brief periods of success bring pride and inflate vanity, but these two do not last. I asked Anna to read that article just for a check. And Anna, said, Anna did youth ministry for about um, eight or 10 years with high school and college girls. And um, obviously has that experience herself. And she said, yeah, that checks out. And then she reminded me, I watched the Super Bowl. You saw the Dove commercials. They're on every Super Bowl the past few years. Dove even realizes the institutionalized idolatry that beauty is God and what it's doing to us. All the distant ripple effects and how it affects each of us. Another God that we've talked about this series a good bit is the God of porn or the comfort or security or equilibrium that it brings back to the stresses of our lives. Uh, Y'all know Ray Ortland by now. I've quoted him a lot. His book, The Death of Porn, a lot of y'all have read it, found a ton of hope. I love that book. You should read it. In the book, in the beginning, the reason I love it is it's so different than any other book about that struggle that you, most of those books are just techniques. Here's five strategies to go back all by yourself and try to conquer something you're probably not going to conquer with these five strategies. And he frames it huge picture. He says porn is the slave trade of our day. Who are the slaves? Being traded, obviously the men and women trafficked and manipulated to produce the content. You don't have to be kidnapped to be in a tough, terrible spot for that to be your livelihood. But also who are the slaves? The men and women um, who sacrifice our hearts, our consciences, our souls in addiction to sex. So the body count is real. Think about this from an institutional perspective, though. Think about this as the water that little boys and little girls in this country grow up in. You know the stats, perhaps. Average age of first exposure to pornography is 12 years old. 41% of people first discovered porn during the school day on a school device. That's how woven into our society and our algorithms and the zeros and the ones in our technology and our advertising, this God is. It should scare you. What does it do to a little boy who grows up in a culture like this? A little girl who grows up in a culture like this? What does it do when we grow up in a political system that knows the only truly motivated voters are terrified voters who have to be fed a steady diet of hyperbolized lies. I remember 
a wedding that Ann and I went to in Savannah, Georgia, after we'd been living in New Mexico for a few years. I need you to know, where I lived in New Mexico was so close to the border that when we would run out and do errands, my phone would switch to international roaming. And we'd been living out there for a few years. My best friend was a border patrol. He'd been 10 years in with the border patrol. I had another close friend at church who was an FBI agent, another close friend who was DEA, another close friend who was the county emergency management director of a county that borders Mexico. And at this wedding, I was probably asked five times, this is around 2015, oh, you're in New Mexico. Dude, how's it going over there? I've heard about the invasion. And I was like, wait, what are you talking about? I was like, like, did something happen when we were flying over yesterday that I didn't hear about? He's like, well, all the people crossing the border are coming over there. And I was like, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's always a problem. That's why we have a border patrol. I didn't know it was an invasion. Like, tell me more about what you're talking about. And he was kind of describing just bits and pieces from the news that he had heard. And I go back and I tell all my friends in law enforcement about this stuff. And they're like, that's news to us. When COVID started, um, I, my phone blew up the first day that Georgia came back um, for in-person classes, fall of 2020. My phone starts blowing up. I get all these texts from other campus ministers, from family, and they're like, hey, what's the scene like in Athens? I heard the news. And again, I'm like, what happened in Athens? And they said, well, I'm watching national news about the die-in at UGA right now. So I, I go online and I look at these pictures, and it's North Campus, and it looks like all 40,000 students were lying down in the grass and their professors saying, we're not going to class because UGA is putting our lives at risk and we're on strike. There was another uh, picture of that picture that was zoomed out and it was about 25 people. Zoomed in so it would tell the story and scare people. I'm not saying that immigration is not an issue that our country has to face. I'm not saying that COVID policies aren't important. Do you hear what I am saying? We live in a system, a political system, that knows you won't vote unless I scare the crap out of you. Are you aware of what's being done to you? You cannot resist it if you cannot recognize it. Are you aware of the worship that's driving that process at a country, at a national level? We grew up in a social media environment that even if you're content with your, with your social life is always feeding you a diet of FOMO, you can't miss out. You can't not be on this platform. Everybody else is on this platform. You're going to miss out on what's going on. You're going to miss the invite. Are you aware of what's happening? Are you aware of the worship that's driving that process? We were growing up, perhaps if you grew up in the church, in an evangelical culture, that perhaps prizes political power and our people getting elected over any other good, certainly above Jesus. And any means, that end, getting our people elected, will justify any means. We'll vote for anybody, no matter what they say, no matter what they do, no matter how see-through commitments are from politicians. We'll do it because we worship power, institutionalized idolatry in the church, outside of the church. Scripture talks about it all the time. Are we listening? Are we recognizing it? We can't resist it until we do. We are caught up in it. We're the victims of it. We perpetuate it. We peddle it, accidentally even. I want to just, I'm trying to make real life connections here so that we can recognize this stuff. I'm, 
if you've been at RUF, some of you, it might be your first night, and you're like, man, this guy's getting political. I'm not trying to. I'm not a, y'all know. I don't talk about this stuff much, but I'm trying to bring this down to earth so we can see it. How has growing up in a country and in a culture that deifies individual expression and personal autonomy, how has swimming in that water for 21 years affected the way you think about little image bearers in the womb of a woman? How has it influenced your views of gender or sexuality or how to honor and dignify those who disagree with you on a biblical view of gender or sexuality? We're swimming in this idolatrous sludge and there's no way to be in the water with the water not becoming part of us at some level. So the Bible isn't calling us, God's not saying like, make sure this stuff doesn't affect you. He's saying it does and it has affected you, but are you recognizing it? And can we resist it? This passage takes a violent turn. Um, I don't know if you were like dialed in when Rosalind was reading this, but it's kind of humorous, it's kind of scary. It takes a violent turn. The gospel of Jesus Christ is an existential threat to everything we've talked about so far. An existential threat. It's, Christians are persecuted in any generation, any culture, any country, one way or another. And it's because the gospel of Jesus is an existential threat to institutionalized idolatry. And boy, do we see that playing out in this passage. Verse 23 is where we see the trigger. About that time, some serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way, or other, in other words, Christians, followers of Jesus and the gospel that they preached. It all started with Demetrius. He was a silversmith. Why was Demetrius so bent out of shape? Well, he was kind of like, you know, the 40 under 40 business owner in Ephesus who didn't just have a factory that made idols, silver images of Artemis the goddess of that region, um, he's all, he had a network of factories. And these are fighting words. When Paul comes and says in verse 26 towards the end, handmade gods aren't really gods at all, which to us is like, that doesn't sound like fighting words. Do you see how it's fighting words to Demetrius and the Ephesians? It is fighting words. Because he immediately connects the dots and realizes the gospel that this man is preaching is a direct threat to my livelihood and the economy of my city. Uh, these were the same arguments going on in the abolition debate. Not so ancient. They keep popping up. Verse 27, he's saying essentially Christianity will lead to a loss of respect for our business. In other words, our whole industry is going to crater. But then he also says, um, I'm also concerned that the temple of Artemis will lose its influence and that this magnificent goddess Artemis will be robbed of her great prestige. And then it descends into a riot from that point on in the passage. The Bible says following Jesus, loving him, prizing him will provoke two different responses in the people around you or one of two responses. It will be appealing. It will be the aroma of Christ. It will draw people in, and it will be repellent, repugnant, fighting words. The porn industry is not neutral to you repenting. 
That's why Pornhub keeps suing states that try to pass age restrictions. That you can't be 11 and log in. They're not neutral. They want you addicted from the earliest age possible. It's their economy that's on the line. They could care less what view of women, what view of sex, what view of relationships, what view of men that's perpetuating. They don't care. You're a dollar in their economy. Social media is not content with you taking a break from social media. You know that because when you log back in, your account's still there. (laughs) Or it keeps pinging email. It finds other ways. Hey, check out what your friends are posting. Big business is not neutral towards humanizing work schedules where people get to take a break. The Republican and Democratic parties are not content with Christians who put Jesus first. They'd rather you put the party platform first and Jesus second. The gospel of Jesus is an existential threat to the porn industry, social media, models of business that exploit. It's an existential threat to our political parties in this country and every country. An existential threat. And they know it. We've talked about a lot. I want to tie this up and we'll end with what's it look like to resist these things. I want to just, I think there's way more than four, but I thought of four, four red flags, four things that can help you detect an institutional idol. Where these four things are present, you can be sure an institutional idol, an idol that's been baked into our culture and our society is present. We're going to pull these up, and I'll talk about them just briefly, um, one at a time real quick. These are all in the passage. Where there is a Christless worldview, again, if you do not have Jesus in your worldview, um, the Bible claims to be the true interpretation of reality, not a religious book that helps you with your spiritual life. Jesus lay claims to everything. He's the God of history. He's over all things. He holds all reality together. And so if he is removed from the worldview, there's a huge gaping hole that you fill or some other God fills. So where there's a Christless worldview, an alternate interpretation of reality or humanity, or um, an alternate moral framework, how you're supposed to live your life, what's worth living your life for. Wherever there's a redefinition of the meaning of life, a rescripted reality, there's an institutionalized idol. Where's this going on in the passage? Verse 36, their worldview was, uh, did not have the true and living God in it at all. It had Artemis at the center. Verse 36, the mayor's talking now. He's trying to calm the crowd down so that they don't get in trouble. And he says, look, this is, uh, everyone knows that Ephesus is the official guardian of the temple of uh, the great Artemis, whose image, Artemis's image, fell down to us from heaven. Since this is an undeniable fact, chill out. The undeniable central fact of their entire existence to which everything else revolved around uh, was a false God, not the true and living God, a Christless worldview. What happens when we operate with a Christless worldview, with a false God in the place of the true God, with a lie at the, at the center of what we think is reality? Confusion results. That shouldn't be surprising at all, right? And that's what results here. I already pointed it out earlier. Verse 28 through 34, you can barely get through half a sentence without the words confusion. They're bumping into each other. No one even knows what's going on. No one even knows where they are. They're shouting for two hours, great is Artemis, great is Artemis. 
it's pandemonium. And presumably, there's, there's Paul and Aristarchus uh, and the others who are just calmly there in the midst of a threatening situation. So confusion results when we have a lie holding up our view of reality. The other, what I mean by a local God is um, a God of a town, a God of a city, which was a big thing back in the day, and we still have this today. There might, again, Dallas is different than Chattanooga, is different than Nashville, is different than Atlanta, that's different than Athens. UGA is different than Georgia Tech, is different than Harvard, is different than FSU. We prize different things there, and we can have these institutionalized local gods that no one else really sees much value in or prizes, but people in that tight little place, they do. So the question for us, uh, if this is a red flag, is what is prized and revered in one culture or one generation that is not prized or revered in other generations or other cultures? In other words, if Artemis is the true God, isn't a true God God for everybody? Can you be God? Can you be a God and just a God for this tiny little tribe over here or this little country or just back in 700 AD but not 2024? Does it work that way? We know it doesn't. God is God is God. Local gods aren't a thing. Um, Cosmic gods are. And that God introduces himself in scripture. But this is a local God and uh, and he talks about it kind of towards the end of the passage um, They talk about how Artemis is worshipped in all of this province and all over the world. They know good and well she wasn't worshipped all over the world. Because at the end of the passage, if you have a Bible, it's right after where I cut it off for the sake of space. But right after this, the mayor is losing his mind, telling people, chill out. The Romans are going to get angry at us if we have a riot. If Artemis is God... And if they're here worshiping and sacrificing to Artemis and, and, and working up such a frenzy for her sake, why are they worried about the Romans? Why are they worried about anything? Which leads to um, another uh, red flag, emotional earthquakes, which is, what, um, which is what we've already pointed out is happening here. They're coming unglued. Where in your city, your campus, your country, your culture, do you see people freaking out? Chaos reigning. They're losing their minds. People are not acting rationally. They're scared. They're panicked. What debates do you see the temperature go way up? Where there are emotional earthquakes and local gods and Christless worldviews, you'll find institutionalized idols. Again, imagine that football game. Imagine Sanford Stadium with 60,000 people verbally crucifying one man. It's a local God, it's an emotional earthquake, it's a Christless worldview. It's panicked anxiety, which is never a good look for the God you say is the true and living God. If he's God, what's there to worry about? Which is actually stuff Jesus says. Why worry about tomorrow? Your father's here, you're a son, you're a daughter. Why be anxious? Don't fear. And he never tires of saying that because he's the true and living God. Don't fear. I'm here. I see you. I know what you need. I'm a step ahead of you. The last is low-key or literal violence. You see it in the passage. I won't belabor the point. But low-key or literal violence. So verbal violence or passive-aggressive violence or literal 
violence. We see this globally. We see it in our country. Where we see people fighting, we see people protecting what they most value and think they have to hold on to and what they most love. Institutionalized idolatry. So we end with the last point of how do we resist? How do we stand with clarity and courage in this water, in this campus, this city, this country, this culture, with all of this going around? What does that look like? Paul, um, this is the only place in Acts where Paul is confronting idols where we don't have a record of his sermon. Every other time he does this in Acts, we have a, the message. This is what he preached. This is what he shared with them. This is what they discussed. Paul always respected the people he was talking about. He was always gentle with the people and ruthless with their idols. God is always gentle with you and ruthless with your idols and my idols. He always respects you, never respects your idols. Always takes you seriously, never takes our idols seriously because they're not worthy of being taken seriously. And he's helping us see them the way he sees them. So Paul has been doing that in Ephesus, but we don't have a record of it. Just a snippet. Verse 26, handmade gods aren't really gods at all. That's Demetrius quoting Paul. That's all we got. We know from all the other times the fuller message he preached. Acts 17, if you want to go home and read it on your own later, is probably the longest few paragraphs we have of the the full message he preached and what he did every time he went to towns like this and said "Uh, you made that God on Tuesday how is that God how is this thing that you revere in your heart how is this local God that brings all these emotional earthquakes and violence and how is that God he also always bookended that message in the resurrection of Jesus Christ it's there verbatim in all the other times so we presume it it was present here as well. What's the significance for you and how does it help you resist institutionalized idols that Jesus is a resurrected Messiah, a resurrected Savior? First, a resurrected Savior presumes a human Savior, does it not? To be resurrected presumes you were dead. It also presumes you were alive, presumes you walked this earth. Presumes you walked a mile or a thousand miles in the shoes of those you were saving. Presumes you can empathize with what it's like to live in a land of idols. What it's like to grow up in a culture that replaced God with everything but God, right? Jesus grew up in the same kind of town you grew up in. Jesus saw the same, Jesus faced the pressures that you and I faced. Jesus walked a mile in our shoes. Jesus knows what it's like to live in our skin because he did live in our skin. Jesus knows what it was like to walk across a stadium and stand with a herald black and get lit up for it. Jesus remembers what it was like to sit with addicts that he went out late at night to track down and find and to bring home to himself. Jesus understands how powerful a pull idolatry is. Everyone he's ever loved has been pulled away by it and pulled back by him. So it's significant that your God, unlike false gods, actually showed up in the real world, in real life, and gets what it's like for you. No idol that you and I prize or look to for comfort has ever lifted a finger for you or I. All they've ever done is fail you. 
it also declares a resurrected and divine Jesus. The Bible's rubric is innocent people live and guilty people die. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, but eternal life in Jesus Christ. The innocent live, the guilty die. How did Jesus die? He was judged guilty by God. He stepped in and became a condemned and abandoned idolater, idol worshiper, cursed by God and receiving the penalty of one who abandoned the true and living God and cheated on him with everything else. That's why Jesus died, even though he was innocent. Why did Jesus raise up again, though? Because only the innocent live. So why did a man who died accounted guilty rise up again? Because the sacrifice that he offered was acceptable to God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof that he is able to and willing to reconcile you to the God who made you for himself. It's the proof that he's real. It's the proof that he's still alive today. It's the proof that he intercedes for you in your long-term battles against your idols. I want to end with one quote, and we're done. This is Charles Colson, who was one of the assistants to President Nixon who got arrested and put in jail for the Watergate scandal. He was talking about how do you know and have confidence that the resurrection of Jesus Christ isn't a religious fairy tale, but is real life, dirt under your fingernails, real. And he said, I know the resurrection of Jesus is a fact, and Watergate is what proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. And they would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. And you're telling me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. How could Paul walk into a city with the gospel of Jesus when he knew this very gospel will make them riot and want to kill me? Paul knew a very big Jesus. This was not JV squad. This is an amateur hour. This isn't a quiet time Jesus. This is industrial strength Jesus. If you don't know him, we've been saying every week, he is parading himself before you in his word. Are you paying attention? Are you wrestling with your heart yet? Or is every message in one ear and out the other? Are you praying like Augustine, God, speak to me and say to me that you're my salvation. Say it in a way I can hear it. That's his invitation to you. Let's pray. So do that, Jesus. You've been here speaking to your beloved people. You've been here wrestling with them, wrestling with me and proving and saying, I'm real. So do what we've just asked and give us the clarity and the courage to be light in a dark world, pushing back against gods that cannot save and gods that ruin our and other people's lives. We pray this in your name and for your sake.